Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Invasion of the Potty, people. We are a, the episode that is the hangover after the, the party that was the Oscars. Yes, we've had all our film awards, everything, everywhere, all at once took place and it was delightful. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the Oscars today. We're going to do a vaguely sort of a directory theme to it. So we're going to be talking about the Oscars because obviously one of the big prizes of the Oscars is celebrating uh, a certain director of the year. And then we'll be doing a March Madness of Directors. We have each submitted two directors each, plus we've asked some other friends of the pod for their directors, and we'll be doing whittling down 12 great directors for one sort of unscientific best director ever, so you know. And then we'll be taking one of those directors and looking at their work post post Thomas. So their franchise continues with Scream 6, which we'll be reviewing and then we'll end with a load of recommendations because that's what we do here. But before that point, I'm Russell and I'll be wrangling all the various people into their various opinions. Uh, James, who are you? I'm James and I don't think this is fair. I've just gone over my February madness and now I have to get the follow up. Come on, when can I get a break? And then to his left is... Hello, Russell. What's your favourite movie podcast? (laughs) Hopefully, it's one that features me, Vincent, as well as you, Russell, and James. If our favourite podcast is not our own, then that doesn't suggest we have much confidence in our own ability, does it? (laughs) But hello, lovely listeners. Nice to have you back with us. Yeah, and speaking of favourite podcasts uh one of my favorites is evolution of horror and i got to hang out with becky and mike for a brief drink so i went and watched pet cemetery the other week with them after uh, they were hosting an event at the reading biscuit factory and i'd never been to an instantly fell in love with because it was all modern and wooden and you could take a pint of cider in with you and watch pet cemetery so what's not to love about that cinema yeah so just a brief shout out to a fabulous evening you should all take a gander of what they've got coming up. They're traveling all around the country with various horror films. I think they're doing next Ring- week. They are doing Ringu. Ringu in Cambridge and I shall be there. Uh, and then they're going to Brighton with the birds. So, and then they've got various other plans. I think they're coming back to Reading with Candyman in June. So I get to watch the original Candyman on the big screen, which I'm very excited about. Sweet. Yeah. Doing a great job. They are doing a great job. Uh, but one place you won't find much horror, which, you know, I'm sort of OK with, but you will find, surprisingly, genre films, is the Oscars. Vincent, you stayed up and watched the whole darn thing whilst I slept and woke up and went, oh, that's nice. These films have won. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I had the option, actually, of going to a live um, event screen- that would be screening the Oscars in, in Manchester um, but I decided to just stay at home and watch them in bed um, and I'm glad I did that and it was well and, and uh, I'll uh, go through through um, my thoughts on it uh, probably about now when it comes to the Academy Awards I think there are three general topics that come up the first is what do we think of the show second is who were the films and people that should have won and three, what do we think of the actual winners? In the first respect, I thought the show itself was really colourful and it had some great set pieces. But as always, it dragged. It's quite interesting from a theatrical perspective, as some parts were quite 
poorly directed. There are aspects where it's made very lively as the camera swoops across the Dolby theatre. But there were also points where I was thinking like, has someone fallen asleep at the wheel here? Because like there were points where the lead into the commercial breaks went on too long. And I'm thinking, yes, what's happening here? Are we going? Um, so I think there was some shoddy programming. Uh, perhaps the strongest aspect of the show itself is it demonstrated once again that this awards show does not need a host. Now, that is not the fault of Jimmy Kimmel, who was the host. His jokes were fine in isolation and his opening monologue was fine, but they slowed down the show and often had very little to do with what was going on. Um, he brought out a donkey at one point, and that was very cute. Um, but for several years now, the Oscars have had no host, and I think they do better without one. So there's no need for a host in future. That's my sort of summation of the show itself. But, you know, aside from within that, there were some uh, lovely performances of all of the original songs. They were done um, particularly engagingly. Now, I don't like the second one. What, who were the films and people that should have won? Because I find that argument very tedious and arrogant. Oscar season is when the idea that all opinions are available seems to be forgotten as everyone, their dog, and probably the dog's intestinal parasites know better than the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I don't know better. I might prefer some over others, but that doesn't mean I'm right. It's far more interesting, I think, to consider why what one did. Thus, we come to number three. What do we think of the winners? Well, in our Oscar preview show, we all made our predictions and we actually did pretty well overall. Um, I've uh, collated the results. Uh, Russell got 14 correct predictions, James 15, and I picked 16. I should have placed a bet. Um, amusingly, the only one where we were all wrong was costume design, uh, where, which was won by Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which none of us predicted. But other, but overall, we, there was a lot of crossover um, in our predictions. Um, the obvious one being everything everywhere all at once, the big winner of the night, uh, picking up seven awards um, in the form of picture, actress in a leading role, actress in a supporting role, actor in a supporting role, directing, original screenplay and editing. And on those, uh, we largely did all pick uh, the right uh, uh, the right one, with the odd exception. Um, so I have, you know, I've, I've no issue with any of the winners. Um, I thought that uh, those that I have now seen most of the nominees and in all cases, I could say, yep, that was all really impressive. Um, and it's notable, I think, that if we focus on the two big winners, everything everywhere, all at once and all quiet on the Western Front, they both have long titles. Furthermore, they are also unusual. Um, in one respect, All Quiet on the Western Front is a typical uh, Oscar darling because it's a war film. But previously, international films have been largely excluded from most categories. Now, we're well aware that things seem to appear to have changed with, with Parasite and subsequently Drive My Car. And All Quiet on the Western Front was another international film that won the Oscar for International Film and also being nominated for Best Picture. But I think it is also significant that the film was nominated and indeed won in various categories, as All Quiet on the Western Front um, picked up, as well as international film, uh, production design, original score, 
um, and cinematography. So all of this says that um, this international film and hopefully more international films going forward can get this sort of interest and it demonstrates an openness on the part of the Academy voters. And if we add to that the film about an immigrant family that was largely subtitled and is a science fiction deranged fever dream of everything everywhere all at once, I think this also shows the Academy showing an interest in more adventurous fare. And that is most encouraging. So if I could take one word away from the 95th Academy Awards, I think it was encouraging. Russell, your thoughts? Uh, that I should have had faith that everything all at once would win more awards and then I would not have picked Spielberg for Best Director. But no, I think that the I have no complaints to this roster of winners. I think that a multiverse sci-fi indie epic winning so many awards is heartening i think brendan fraser being a best actor winner is remarkable fraser Fraser, sorry i think michelle yo winning best actress is wonderful i yeah i have no complaints to any of these winners i'm very happy with all of them um within the remits of what the oscars is i think this is a wonderful roster of winners and yeah usually there's something that annoys me and there wasn't this year so you know success James, how about you? Well, I'm quite, uh, I'm quite um, ecstatic with the awards. I mean, yes, there are some where I think, oh, was that really the best choice out of them? But that's just me. But I don't think there's any awards which I can really quibble with. As much as I would love, say, Paul Mescal to win Best Actor. I'm not exactly foaming at the mouth that Brendan Fraser won the award because he still gave a a really good performance this year. And it's so wonderful to see so, so many people who have been forgotten about in the industry persevere uh, over that night. And it's just wonderful when you see like Jamie Lee Curtis thanking uh, the horror genre and its fans to when she's accepting her Oscar or to see RRR win best song um, it's just wonderful to see that such so many wonderful films are recognised and it's I just hope that this is another great step forward that um, that maybe the Oscars are going to be a bit more inclusive and and it does feel like yeah parasite was the watershed moment to really do that at this point yeah indeed it was also um, there were also some first timers um the first um indian films to uh pick up awards you mentioned rrr there uh winning internet uh, winning best song um there was also um, an indian film one uh, documentary short um with uh, the Elephant Whisperers. Uh, so another we, we mentioned before that uh, we're not we don't tend to look out out for the short films, but hey, they are out there. And The Elephant Whisperers is one example of some of a groundbreaking film in this regard. And it's available on Netflix, so no reason not to check that out. Yeah. So um, yeah, it sounds like overall we're uh, we're pleased with the way the Oscars worked out, and 
let's see if we can be foaming at the mouth um, next year. Um, or perhaps not. We can all be ecstatic once again. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be lovely, wouldn't it? Mm. <laughs> Joy? Why do you look so stupid? Ma'am, you and your pig can't be here. Is it that I can't be here? Or that I'm not allowed <sighs> to be here? Hey! Now then, how's this for a segue? Um, we mentioned, you know, Brendan Fraser winning um, Best Actor for a um, film that I actually just saw the other day, The Whale. And speaking of whale, does this does the term whale come up in our neck in our feature today, Russell? Well, yes, it does. So it's March, and I'm following Twitter. I know that March Madness is a thing within sport in America, where they um, whittle down several contestants so they can get one. So we are going to take twelve directors, debate amongst ourselves, and. <laughs> pick it with it down to the one director that we're going to say unscientifically is the best director ever. I mean, there are well, so the many best directors. Director for, yeah. Best director no, for this March. We yeah, could do another one in the March. future and come with another one. <laughs> um, and so we have each picked six across the three of us, so two each. Plus I put this out to some friends of the pod who have either been on here or who we you know, do work that we admire. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to do a vote of there's going to be six votes, then three votes, then one vote. So let's begin. First up, we have Park Chan-wook versus James Whale. So Park Chan-wook is the South Korean maestro whose twisty thrillers delight and elate, whose visions of vengeance came to define an era of cinema from the 2000s. His key films are Old oh Boy, The Handmaiden and Decision to Leave. And The Handmaiden won the BAFT for Best Film, not in the English language. So, yeah. And he is up against James Whale, who was picked by a grain from What a Scream. And he is one of the key figures of the Universal Monster Movie era. Whale's impression on horror is iconic, crafting two of the Universal Monsters. Plus, he directed some other non-horrors that are also pretty darn fabulous. And his key films are Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and Showboat. And so, uh, how to do this? We can say these are both very, very, very good directors. I can tell you that Park Chan-wook was the also-ran choice of three or four people. When I asked them what their favourite director was, they were like, this or this, and they would always go Park Chan-wook or someone else. But James Whale is a fascinating figure in the 30s, and he also directed one of the great sequels. And yet his Universal Monster movies are wonderful. But I'm going to put that to James. James, if you had to pick between these two, who would you pick? Well, hmm. Right. Um, this is going to be something which I keep saying throughout this. This is a tough one because you've selected two really good directors. And. OK, it's looking at the James Whale gave us some of the best classic horror films. I mean, The Invisible Man, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, all iconic, all tremendous in their own way. And then you got Park's impressive breadth of films. I mean, Old Boy, Stoker, last year's Decision to Leave. Okay, I think what only one film tips the scales for me. 
and that's the handmaiden. So I'm gonna my vote's gonna go for Park Chan Wook. Okay. Vincent, are you going to go for Park Chan Wook or James Whale? The influence of James Whale cannot be underestimated. Um, and I've realised, of course, the other link to what to our previous section, because there is uh, the um, biopic of James Whale, uh, Gods and Monsters, featuring Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser. Mm. Who would have thought, thought that Brendan Fraser would have an Oscar and Ian McKellen doesn't? Bizarre. Wow. Anyway, um, and, Wh- and McKellen was nominated for playing James Whale in Gods and Monsters, but that's another story. I have only seen two whale films. Um, and no, I'm not talking about Moby Dick or the In the Heart of the Sea. I've only seen Frankenstein and um, Bride of Frankenstein. I need to, speaking of the evolution of horror, as we were earlier, I need to see The Old Dark House, and it would probably be, behoove me to see such things as The Invisible Man and more. But I do feel in the case of James Whale, I cannot make a terribly informed decision. Park Chanuk, however, I have seen Old Boy, um, Sympathy for, for Mr. Vengeance, Lady Vengeance, The Handmaiden, Stoker, Decision to Leave, and his um, remarkable TV series for the BBC, The Little Drummer Girl. So it's not entirely a fair comparison, and I think I definitely need to see more whale films. But in terms of what I have seen and have consistently been thoroughly impressed by, I will go for Park Chanuk. How about you, Russ? I agree with both of you, um, mostly because Park Chan-wook is one of the few directors who, if they produce a new film, I will want to see it as soon as I can. I think his films are remarkably good. Um, yeah, I, I adore his work. I think James Whale is a wonderful director of his era, but I can't deny Park Chan-wook's influence on my taste in cinema. Old Boy was a key text of my teenage years. And probably is why one of the reasons I studied film at university. And uh, I can't deny The Handmaiden is one of the greatest romances I've ever seen. So Park Chan will go through and we'll see who he fights shortly. So from there we go to two horror icons, one modern, one more classic. We have Wes Craven, who is picked by Mark from Buddy Good Screen, and he is a visionary who has defined the horror genre in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and he's capable of blowing up the slasher subgenre not just once, but twice, and his influence can still be felt because we're going to be talking about a sequel to one of his films shortly. His key films are A Nightmare on Elm Street, The People Under the Stairs, and Scream, and we're going to put up against Mike Flanagan, who is picked by Chloe Davies. And he is one of a group of directors that are defining horror today. So Flanagan can produce tight, intimate horrors, some of the best Stephen King adaptations, and sprawling TV horror epics. And he is next to take on The Dark Tower, I believe, over at Amazon. His key films are Hush, Gerald's Game, and Doctor Sleep. So, old versus new. Vincent, who would you go between Wes Craven and Mike Flanagan? It's an interesting one here because... Like Whale, the influence of Wes Craven cannot be underestimated. He, the contributions he has made to the horror genre with such films as A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, the, um, and The Hills Have Eyes, Scream, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, let's not forget, uh, which nicely bridges, I guess, um, A Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, all uh, you know, very, very influential. 
Flanagan is taking the horror genre nowadays to strange new places, you know, able to make full use of the modern um, uh, facilities um, of filmmaking to create some remarkable um, new works. So I suppose what it comes down to for me is which of these filmmakers do I find, whose work do I find more engaging? And for that, I will have to say Flanagan. Um, I am a Flanner fan. I have enjoyed pretty much everything I've seen from him. And I cannot say that of Wes Craven. I've never been a fan of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I was underwhelmed by The Hills Have Eyes. Um, the People Under the Stairs, I thought was fine. but um, And Scream, you know, certainly the first uh, four screams um, that he, that all of which he directed, um, all have some, uh, some really strong points. But if you were to ask me which filmmaker has produced work that I have at the end of which gone, you know what? Wow, that was something really impressive. I will go for Mike Flanagan over Wes Craven. Um, it's not entirely fair, maybe, and I'm sure Flanagan wouldn't be where he is if it hadn't been for Craven. I'm sure he's learned a lot from him. Um, but I guess it sort of says more about the kind of uh, film or film fan I am in that I do tend to lean towards the more contemporary material because I want to see where the medium and in this case particularly the genre is going and when it comes to modern horror Flanagan is right there at the cutting edge and that's unfair on Craven being older and slightly dead um, but <laughs> nonetheless um, if I you know if I was to pick um, a triple bill I would much rather go for um yeah, Hush, Gerald's Game, and Doctor Sleep over um, The Hills Have Eyes and Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream. That would be my preferred viewing. So yeah, I pick Flanagan in this pairing. How about you, James? Okay, this is an interesting one. You've got one of the granddaddies of horror um, and one of the rising pups who's really made their mark and the, these are two astounding directors. Ugh, curse you, Russell, for this. Um, see, this Flanagan, yeah, <laughs> Flanagan has. <sighs> okay, I love what Flanagan's did with his Stephen King adaptations. His television works were astounding, and he's probably one of the best filmmakers to bring alive something which feels very much like Stephen King's voice rather than a watered-down, bastardised version that some filmmakers can be guilty of. And then you got Craven, who reinvigorated horror twice, and... Okay, um... Okay, my vote's going to come down to one scene which has stuck with me ever since I first saw it and that scene is the opening to Scream because that is a masterful short film in its own right it's tense it's phenomenally done and and the fact that that expands into an astounding horror film which really was influential witty and still holds up to this day is well fucking fantastic um my vote goes for wes craven so russell you mm. want fun 
You make the deciding vote. <laughs> yes, you do. So if I were to if I were to base it on their impact and influence on a specific genre, I would go for Craven. But I'm going to go for my personal preference. I'm going to go with Flanagan because um he is one of the most exciting directors currently working for me. And Doctor Sleep is a film that is so close to my heart. It is a bizarre comfort watch for me. And many of Craven's works just don't really gel for me. I think The People Under the Stairs is brilliant. I don't really like A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm not the biggest Scream fan. I'll be honest with you. I'm not the biggest Scream fan. Uh, I, I just don't really gel with the slasher genre. Whereas I find, because Flanagan always understands his uh, what he's doing. So when he's making a Netflix thriller like Hush, it's small and intimate. When he's making something like Doctor Sleep, it's big and sprawling and expansive, and and there's so much like coming out of that film. Uh, so for that instance, I will say apologies to Wes and go with Flanagan because if I'm honest, if they're both in their prime, in their prime right now, I'd still choose a Flanagan film over a Craven film if there was a new one coming out. Oh, there so yes, go. Flanagan goes forward. Ooh. Sorry, Craven. Uh, next up, we have quite an odd pairing. We have Hayao Miyazaki versus Catherine Bigelow, who are two very different directors. So Hayao Miyazaki is the man behind Shiro Ghibli. He is defined Japanese and probably animation in general since the 80s and is one of the great authors of the medium. His key films are My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, which won, I believe, the first ever best animated feature at the Oscars. Second, actually. Sorry, second. And then there's Catherine Bigelow, who is a, again, is a master of tension and action. Her works have spanned genres, and she was the first woman ever to win an Oscar for Best Directing for The Hurt Locker, which also won Best Film. And her key films are Near Dark, The Hurt Locker, and Zero Dark Thirty. And uh, I'll go first this time. Why not? Um, one of these is one of my picks, which is Hayao Miyazaki. I think Hayao Miyazaki might be one of the greatest directors who's ever existed. And I, I think this quite strongly now, having done my other podcast for so long, his, the breadth of his works, the lightness of touch that he has of some of them, the the epic sweep of others, the themes that have gone through his works from things like Naushka through to um, The Wind Rises and whatever he does next. Uh, it will be a sad day when we lose Miyazaki and he keeps on retiring. I love it. I think Catherine Bigelow is a fantastic director. I think she has directed some wonderful films. I think Near Dark is a rare thing of a vampire film I like. I don't like vampire films and I love Near Dark. I think the last act of Zero Dark Thirty is some of the tensest cinema I have ever watched, even though I knew the ending. Uh, but I think Hayao Miyazaki is my choice because... I have become increasingly enraptured with animation and thus must pick what I think is the great author of the medium. Uh, James, Miyazaki or Big Eye? Okay, so I'll preface this by saying Hayao Miyazaki is someone whose works I'm, I need to check out more of. Um, he's definitely one who, well, Studio Ghibli in general has just been a blind spot for me. Um, but what I have seen has impressed me. 
I mean, from Porco Rosso, the way it's it takes of a, an anti-fascist tale and and wraps it in this wonderful animation about a man pig flying a World War Two plane is brilliant. And then you've got My Neighbor Totoro, which is just a wonderful gem. I mean, cat bus, need I say more? But then on the flip side, Catherine Bigelow has really had an interesting career. I mean, she had such genre fare, such as My Beloved Near Dark. And she, she now work, goes for socially relevant tales such as Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty and Detroit. And if you put those two in a in the Venn diagrams, you'd have those two as circles. The in interconnectivity between them would be 1995 Strange Days, which is a wonderful, wonderful film that's criminally underseen and not available to stream or rent anywhere in the UK. Um, so yeah, physical media forever. <laughs> but if you're asking me to choose between these two filmmakers, as you obviously are, I think I'm going to have to go for Catherine Bigelow. Um, maybe my choice would have differed if I'd seen more Miyazaki works, but at this point in time, I Bigelow gets my vote. Okay. Vincent, now where does your heart lie? Well, generally, hopefully in my chest, because um, that's how I stay alive. Um, now, Catherine Bigelow was, was one of my picks. Um, we'll come on to my other one later, but um, she is one of my like top 10 favorite directors. Um, I have found, I, have, I find her work is something that I continually go back to and find new delights. Um, you know, Zero Dark Thirty is one of, was one of my top uh, uh, films of the past decade. Um, Detroit I also was also one of my top films of its respective year um the Hurt locker is one that I continually go back to and find interesting stuff I actually published an article on Catherine Bigelow a couple of uh, years ago uh, looking at her as a um professor of um, what I call new action realism and um film and I've always had a great fondness for um point break I mean what's not to like and um, there's near dark has grown on me um I've never I've always found that the Widowmaker a bit of a, a bit of a slog that one I think was a misfire for her um and uh, yeah strange days good shout there James that's a strong one um yeah Bigelow's work always um, gives me something strong always gives you know a really powerful hit um that and it, she does she creates great cinema Miyazaki is um, an unparalleled auteur of the animation medium whose films have continually um, enraptured and enchanted and astonished me. I remember seeing uh, Laputa, Castle in the Sky, long, long ago, not knowing anything about it. I was just channel hopping one day and along came this strange uh, there was a strange cartoon, which was clearly, you know, not a short one. It kept going. Um, this was, I think, before I knew the term feature animation, <laughs> even though I had seen plenty of them by this point, just didn't know the name of them. Um, and it was a, and it was one I never forgot and made a point of checking out when I knew what it what it actually was. Um, and when I saw um, Princess Mononoke and 
Nushka, Valley of the Wind, and Spirited Away, all of them, and My Neighbor Totoro, all of them just made me go, you know what? This is really extraordinary and boundary pushing. It is not things that I know. And much as I love Bigelow's work, I suppose that a lot of what I get from her work I do find elsewhere. Whereas what I find in Miyazaki's work, I don't find elsewhere. So even though it wasn't one of my picks, and I will always fly the flag for female filmmakers, I am going to go for Miyazaki. Mm. Ooh. So we have our first three through. Let's find out our next batch. Who will be firsting them? So taking on, hold on, how I went out. Taking on Miyazaki will either be Steve McQueen or Michael Mann. So Steve McQueen is the fashion designer turned director who captures intimate details of fascinating lives lived and has mastered both cinema and television. And his key films have been Hunger, Shame and 12 Years a Slave. And 12 Years a Slave won Best Film at the Oscars. Or there's Michael Mann, who is an innovative director of icily cool thrillers, as well as punchy true stories and biopics, and he's responsible for perhaps one of the greatest shootouts in cinema history. His key films are Manhunter, Heat, and The Insider, and I thought he'd be nominated for more Best Directors, but he's been nominated for Best Director once for The Insider. Um, James, you can go first this time. McQueen or Mann? Okay, so I'm going to level with you. McQueen is was my vote, and Michael Mann is a filmmaker whose works I need to watch more of. So this is a bit uninformed of me this round, but we'll soldier on. <laughs> so the films I've seen of Michael Mann have been Heat, Collateral, and Manhunter. Each of them absolutely brilliant works with such style, but admittedly they're films I haven't seen in at least a decade, so I desperately need to revisit them. I think Steve McQueen, I chose him because I think he's a phenomenal filmmaker. Um, he began his career with that, though, with a trilogy of works which approached tough topics in unflinching detail. Where you got films detailing hunger strike, sex addiction, and slavery, and each of them unforgettable in their own right. He followed that up with more pulpy tale of widows but so good as it tackled intriguing social commentary there's one scene where the camera's trained on a car as it moves across some um, neighborhoods which says so much in, with that shot and his work on the small act series of films is brilliant so i'm at this point i'm gonna choose steve mcqueen Vincent, um, I wonder where you'll go. <laughs> well, uh, Michael Mann was my other pick, uh, which, and anyone who knows me will not be surprised by that. I wrote my PhD and public, and I've written a book on, on, which then became a book on Michael Mann. So I know his work inside, uh, and uh, I am the insider when it comes to Mann's work. Um, I have seen everything of his, and I have also seen everything every year. Uh, uh, feature film Steve McQueen has directed so because at least because um, one thing these guys have in common is they're not that prolific McQueen's been making movies for about 15 years now and has delivered four man has been making films uh, well actually for as long as I've been alive <laughs> so um, 44 years um, 
and but in that time has uh, you know produced uh, fewer than 20 films all of which i have seen repeatedly um now both of them are absolute masters of their craft i think we should it would be fascinating if you could somehow combine them into a mcmahon but that sounds terribly um wwe-ish and we know Vince mcmahon's a terrible person so we won't do that um but they are very they're very distinctive um filmmakers in their own right i think that one of the key things that steve mcqueen does um and makes great use of is the long take um james mentioned there's a particularly interesting um sequ- uh, long take sequence in widows and what's surprising is that it's you know um i think there's only one that really stands out in that whereas in um shame and hunger and 12 years a slave there are various sequences that are conducted in long takes to really get make sure that you are looking very closely at this difficult subject matter michael mann on the other hand is one who will use a lot of very quick cuts if you look at everything he's made really since um ali um he favors a i love that you said russell he's delivered some punchy biopics yes quite literally <laughs> he did a biopic <laughs> of a boxer um and following on for, through um you know, the collateral Miami Vice, Public Enemies, and the much, I think, um, unfairly maligned Black Hat, um, uh, often t- uh, characterized by a very free-floating camera and quick cuts, all of which are used to create often quite impressionistic perspectives on their work. Um, you know, the Queen is known for social issues. Man is known for, for um, you know, sociological uh, crime. And I could talk about both of them for ages, I've realised. I'm just sort of wittering on. Um, so I will go to probably what's already been predicted. Yes, uh, my, my pick is my man. Michael Mann is my pick for this pairing. How about you, Russell? How are so, you? I think they're both phenomenal directors. Um, I would just base it on their heist movies. I think Widows oh, is a really great work. But Heat is one of the greatest heist movies ever made. And, I and my personal favourite film of all time. And I, it's very easy to see why it's someone's favourite film. I think that we haven't seen the best of McQueen yet. And that feels hubris to say it when he's done Hunger, Shame and 12 Years a Slave as a one, two, three. But yes, I think Man is going to be my pick because of his works are phenomenal. And uh, McQueen is an exceptional director but man is just tipping the scales for me in this vote it's a hard one isn't it so we have four directors left so two votes left so next up we have what might be the two titans of this round we're going to do john carpenter as picked by tim from moving pictures film club and steven spielberg as picked by will chich so John Carpenter is a genre author who has had one of the greatest runs of films from the late 70s until the early 90s and has a dab hand as a film composer. His key films are Halloween, Escape from New York and The Thing and many others, but I just limited it to three. And someone else who I could have listed a whole heap of films, I'm going to limit it to three, is Steven Spielberg, who is a director who has simultaneously defined modern blockbusters and been a mainstay of the Oscars for the last 40 years. His key films are Jaws, E.T. and Schindler's List. And note I kept out my favourite film I made from that list. And he is a two-time winner of Best Director for Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List. Uh, Yeah, this feels like a tough choice because they're both such impressive directors. I will go first and I will pick 
who is in fact my favorite director is John Carpenter because that run of films that he had for so long like I there's barely a film that I don't think is worth your time from his work from Halloween onwards until about uh maybe in the mouth of madness maybe slightly before then yeah I think John Carpenter is a remarkable director he is um he tells these stories in a focused, contained way and has a phenomenal score. He has directed my favourite horror ever. Yeah, I think John Carpenter is a remarkable director. And I think Steven Spielberg is a remarkable director. Having done a series on him, I think I underestimated how good Spielberg is. But I think Spielberg has been less consistent for a period of time. I think Spielberg has perhaps more films in his career, but he's been less consistent but he did direct my favourite film ever made, which is Jurassic Park. So on the one hand, I'm bad-mouthing Silberg, but on the other hand, it's just because he's up against John Carpenter, who is, for my mind, one of the great directors, perhaps my favourite director ever. Uh, Vincent, who would you go for in this hellish fight? <sighs> yeah, it would be. An, it's an interesting fight, isn't it? You sort of see, like, okay, so how does this sort of match up in terms of their movies? Do we have, like, Bruce the Shark versus um michael myers <laughs> do we have the um the aliens from they live against the aliens from war of the worlds hmm, that would be an interesting contest um yeah it's i love both, both these filmmakers because they both give me they, they both give me quite different things um and the you know carpenter he gives a lot of um he gives a lot of intensity um he gives a lot of atmosphere and he gives a um, and he gives a particular and, and for what he's done for you know low budget um horror and science fiction filmmaking especially i think his work um, is you know hugely important of course having said all that if i think of steven spielberg then i think of so many um important things he's seen because i mean yeah i grew up with on his work like so many of us did uh, you know um indiana jones uh um, in the 80s and then um, things like Jurassic Park and um, her saving Private Ryan come the 90s and then you know, getting into his more mature, as I matured into his work and came uh, to understand Schindler's List and uh, my own personal favourite Spielberg film, Munich. Um, and then his more, his more recent experimental films, I think, you know, where he's been pushing exploring different parts of the medium with like the adventures of Tintin and Ready Player One and West Side Story. To pick them, to pick one from these two, I have to confess it is is not actually that difficult for me because Steven Spielberg is one of my top directors and in all, no disrespect, John Carpenter isn't. Um, I admire his work more than I enjoy it. Spielberg's work I admire and enjoy and he's I think what I will say would push Spielberg ahead is he is he has demonstrated greater versatility than Carpenter, applying his skills to such a range of genres and generally I think being pretty consistent. Um, yeah, whether he's doing um, the popcorn thrills of Jurassic Park, the serious political and philosophical um, areas of Munich, or the um, very rich. Um, trust in the audience's faith um that he shows of the historical biopic that is lincoln um yeah i go for spielberg here so and james that, yeah, you have the decider james. here 
I wonder which way I'm going to go on this one. Um, so according to Letterboxd, these are the two directors I've seen the most films of. Um, I think it's interesting to look at them. They're both influential masters who made their names in the 70s and made themselves known with an iconic horror film. But their careers did diverge. You saw Spielberg... Um, going from strength to strength, even if his films varied in quality, he still powered through and made film after film, and he shows no signs of slowing down, even today. And then John Carpenter, he released quite a few works which were unappreciated at the time, and it forced him to take director for higher gigs, which are oddities on his filmography to look at now. And to this day, he's essentially retired to spend his days playing video games. Fair enough. You've had a hard life and you've delivered so many good films. You've earned it, man. And he smokes and... weed and he plays in his band. So, you know, <laughs> he's a rocker. He's an old rocker now. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Both of them made great films starring Sam Neill. This is true. But I'm not going to pretend like this is a hard decision. John Carpenter is my all-time favourite director. Halloween is one of my all-time favourite films. Guess what I'm voting for? That's my vote. <laughs> okay. There Our we go. biggest beast has been felled, and it was going to be a big beast between those two, because they're both two of the biggest directors ever. Uh, and Another massive director next is Alfred Hitchcock, and he's up against Celine. I don't know how to pronounce her name. James, how do I pronounce her name? Celine Schiama. Thank you. And he's up against Celine Schiama. So Alfred Hitchcock was picked by Rebecca McCullum. Uh, he is the master of tension who has an entire style of film named after him. His works can be playful, chilling, terrifying, and hilarious, and sometimes all in the same work. His key films are Rear Window, Vertigo, and Psycho. And I could have named a lot more films because he made a lot of films. And, fun fact, nominated for five Best Director Oscars and won none of them. So, there. Whereas Celine is a French maestro who's behind beautifully intimate portraits of love that are guaranteed to break your heart. So her key films are Water Lilies, Tomboy, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And no, no film has broken my heart quite as much as Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, Vincent, I'm going to ask you first. Hitchcock or Skyma, 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 Skyma. Okay, yeah. Of all the pairings, this for me is the most difficult. Um, peek behind the camera here, uh, behind the curtain here, folks. I had pre-decided most of these beforehand, but with this one, Hitchcock and Skyma have. Yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but. Hitchcock's influence on the cinematic medium cannot be underestimated. Um, you know, he, he is one of the most significant and influential um, figures in the history of cinema. And several of his films, I think, are fantastic. I really like the original version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. I think Psycho is possibly one of the greatest films ever made. Um Rear Window is great. Frenzy is um, intriguing. Vertigo, repeatedly, um, has been a couple of, has been proclaimed one of the greatest films ever. Um, 
that said, I find some of his other works a bit um, unengaging. I've never um, clicked with North by Northwest, nor the remake of The Man Who um, Knew Too Much. Um, so it's a really tricky one. Um, in the case of Skiama, um, annoyingly, I have seen very little of her work. I have only seen her two most recent films, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Petite Maman, um, both of which I thought were stellar. So I suppose, I mean, there's various ways of putting this. If from a, as a, as a film academic, I would probably have to say um, Hitchcock because of the importance of his work in terms of proportion of films of theirs I have seen that I enjoyed, I would go with Skiama because she's got a, you know, two for two hit rate. Um, but I think what I'm going to do I am now going to champion female filmmakers, and I will say I will go for Celine Sciamma, partly because I think you know women filmmakers need to be championed more, especially when I think their work is important. And what Sciamma is doing is creating cinema, and also because of my interest and my preference, I suppose, for contemporary filmmaking. If I have a problem with Hitchcock's work, it's that it is a product of its time, and it often feels too well behaved. It's a bit too like, hmm, oh yeah, Marnie, that was another one that didn't sit well with me. Um, so whereas in the case of Skiama, I think she is someone who is pushing um, cinema forward. The, many of the discussions around Portrait of a Lady on Fire were saying, here's the female gaze of cinema. And granted, you know, Skiama could only be doing that if the male gaze of cinema had been previously established, not least by people like Hitchcock. And let's face it, some of his work now is kind of problematic um so for the sake of progressiveness and what is going forward and ways that cinema is being innovated and developed i go for skiama how about you james okay you know what it's really interesting how considering hitch hitchcock's um let's say troublesome encounters with some of his women that he's been paired up with Celine Scamma at this stage. Mm. <laughs> yeah, nicely done, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um so Scamma was one of my choices. Oh my goodness. You you have been evil with some of these, Russell, I must admit. Um they're all evil. Any choice would be evil an evil choice. That's <laughs> why we love you. Mm. So it's interesting. You've got Hitchcock who's so good with the suspense. I mean, there's that famous quote of his about how a bomb under the table delivers surprise after an ordinary scene if it goes off. But if the audiences are aware the bomb's under the table, then that ordinary scene becomes something tense because you're waiting for it to go off and for the people to just stop having their banal conversations because there's a fucking bomb under the table. It's... And that tension has been really well replicated. I mean, Psycho is a masterpiece. The Birds, Rear Window. It's a phenomenal lot of work he's had. Um, Celine Sciamma, I, she's one of the few filmmakers who I've watched every single film that of hers that's been released. And I think what she does with these films, often about young girls, and they're grappling with life... Uh, through their own methods. I mean, you've got tales of people escaping poverty and societal pre pressures by joining a gang or tackling grief 
through a childlike perspective or having a story about romance and longing, which, despite being beautiful in a moment, that everyone knows cannot last, and it's all the more tragic for it. Um, fuck it, I'm going to go for Scammer. I mean, appropriate that she brings down Hitchcock. <laughs> oh, the beast! <laughs> huh. uh, so Skiama goes forward. If I give my choice, I think Skiama has the two films of theirs I've seen are two of the best films of the last five years. So how long ago was Portrait of a Lady in Fire? But yeah, the two of the best films of the last it was five 2019. years. And I would have picked Hitchcock though because uh, I can't deny the impact of seeing his works had on me when I was uh, 17 or 18 and when I first saw them. And I think his very best are some of the very best thrillers. But he was a piece of shit, so, you know, it's probably good that he has been knocked out by um, us being progressive, which is good, because Skiyama is a phenomenal director. And I'm excited because we're about to phone her again, because we go to round two. We have whittled down our um, 12 to 6. And now Park Chan-wook takes on Celine Skiama. So on the one hand, a South Korean master of tension and thriller versus a French maestro of love and intimate portrayals of life. So, uh, Vincent, which of those would you want to go through to our final? Horrible, yeah, I somehow thought it would be a different pairing after this, but which is foolish of me because I think you did tell us how the pairing would work. Oh, this is really tough. Um, okay, well, my old thing, my thing previously about um, contemporary filmmakers tending to pip it for me doesn't work here because these are both, you know, very current up to the minute filmmakers. They're also these are, you know, not your, not not like your standard white men as three of the others remaining are. Um, got one from woman from uh, France and a man from South Korea. Okay. Um, well, we've talked about them both. They are both phenomenal filmmakers, and um, if you, you know, put me gave me a triple bill of any of their works, I'd happily watch them. So what I'm going to go with is the one whose work I think most resonates with me. And that's because I am kind of a twisted, sick fuck. I'm going to go for Park Chanuk, whose films are often dark and grim and twisted. Um, whereas what I've seen of Skiamas, they are more sort of, you know, they're beautiful and they're tragic and they're soulful and they're touching, uh, which is great for part of me because part of me is a big squish. But another part of me is something that um, if you look at too closely, you'll go, oh, no. And that <laughs> is the part that relishes the work of Park Chanuk. And so I pick Park. Russell, your turn. Who's it to be? Um, I'll keep this brief. It's going to be Park Chanuk. Um, for a time, Old Boy was my favorite film ever made. It's gone down in my estimation because I think it's a strange favorite film to have. And my estimation of Jurassic Park has never been moved. From being a masterpiece. Yeah, I think Park Chan-wook is, as I said before, of all these directors, if one of them comes back with a film, I will go watch it. It is Park Chan-wook. So 
It has to be Park who goes forward to the final. Oh, and James, I, we mean he's made it through, but who would you have picked? Oh my God, Russell, this is what I mean. Evil, evil, evil. <laughs> Enjoying oh. this. Yeah, these are, these are honestly two of my favorite contemporary filmmakers. So this is tough. Um, okay, I think if I put it down to just whittle it down to The Handmaiden versus Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, two films about two women in love um, having to grapple with obstacles in their way. Um, Okay, um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire emotionally destroyed me. The Handmaiden left me uh, twisted in impressed. Uh, I think Portrait just pips it, so scammer. Okay. She sadly doesn't make it through, but I can understand mm. why you would vote for her. her the yeah, two, yeah. two of her films are just phenomenal, and I want to watch the rest of her stuff. And so we go from them to Mike Flanagan versus John Carpenter. And James, as you said last 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 time, you can go first this time. Is it Flanagan or Carpenter for you? Are you trying to destroy me? Why not? <laughs> okay. Um, Mike Flanagan is an exceptional talent of working today. Um, Midnight Mass is... I mean, yeah, it it's not that it shouldn't have been great, but it shouldn't have been that fucking good because it's oh, one of the best things Netflix has ever done, in my opinion. Um, you know what? Okay, I'll put it down to this. Hush feels very Carpenter-inspired, but Carpenter did the home invasion slasher a better with halloween uh oh god the things i tell myself uh carpenter it's carpenter for me okay vincent carpenter or flanagan Mm, well uh we've covered them both in a fair bit of detail so what i'm going to think about this is okay john carpenter's probably done making films he's got a big back catalog and there's a bunch of stuff of his i have not seen Am I worrying about the ones of his I've not seen? Not especially. Mike Flanagan is still making stuff, and am I excited about what he brings out next? Yes. On the basis of, not to uh, you know lower the tone more than I already have, but um, in terms of which of them excites me, I will go for Flanagan. So, okay. one for Carpenter, one for Flanagan. You get the deciding vote, Russ. And I will go for my favourite film director ever, which is John Carpenter. I, I, uh, I, uh, I've said enough on him, and we're going to talk about him again in a minute, so I'll save that for then. And our final vote of this round, one that I'm sure will break some of our hearts, it's Hayao Miyazaki versus Michael Mann. And uh, I think James should go first, because both me and Vincent have picked one of these directors. <laughs> So essentially, under the cider, <laughs> maybe, but no, I think, I think we, but no, uh, I, I, we'll see. I think we'll see. As the um, independent voice, you can go first. Okay, so it's interesting. These are both filmmakers whose works I feel I need to see more of that haven't really delved too deeply into the pool of what they've delivered. 
so it comes down to what I have seen already. And is it... Okay, in that regards, I've, of what I have seen, I've, I'm going to go for Hayao Miyazaki because I think the way he pairs, the way he delivers his story and pairs, as I said with Porco Rosso, these different way, these adult themes into palatable ways that anyone can enjoy um, and just makes it look so gorgeous. Okay, I'll, I'll go next. Um I think Hayao Miyazaki has never made a bad film. I've seen all of his films, and I well, except a few of his very early ones, and I don't think I've seen a single bad one. And I've seen some of the greatest bits of cinema that I've ever seen, and some of the most joyful moments have been next to my daughter whilst watching them. So I'm being sentimental. I'm going for Hayao Miyazaki because he probably means the most to me of all these directors, even more than John Carpenter, because of the stuff that now interests me in film. Uh, Vincent, uh, he's, Miyazaki's gone forward, but uh, would it be Man on Miyazaki for you? Um, well, I, it's funny, you know, I looked at this when you first put forward that pairing. My Initially, I thought I would go um, Miyazaki, um, you know, because of the innovation and the ways, that, as you've said, as both of you pointed out, he um, takes complex ideas and makes them into a highly accessible, puts them into something highly accessible. Um, I would, however, still go with um, Michael Mann, not just because he's my man, um, but because the uh, the kind of films, the, the films that he makes are about the topics that particularly interest me. So that's why I would um, pick Mann. But, you know, um, outvoted. So we move on to the next round. To the final round to a hellish a hellish triple freeway vote so we have park chan wook we have john carpenter we have hayo Miyazaki, and uh, on a personal level these are probably my three favorite directors ever so oh boy um vincent you can go first yeah i thought you might <laughs> say that okay Right. We've talked plenty about these guys. Okay. I'm going to sort of go through these in I'm kind of going to rank them. So it's Carpenter versus Miyazaki versus Park. For me, it's not John Carpenter because I haven't seen enough of his work that made me go, wow. Um, so it comes down to Miyazaki and Park. Um, I said earlier that, you know, Park's work um, appeals to the to my dark sensibilities. Um, but let's not forget that um, as well as putting, you know, grim subject matter on screen, Park also manages to do a fantastic balancing of tone in that he can go from, oh God, that's really horrible to <laughs> that's really funny um, in quick success in, without it ever feeling, you know, jarring or lurching. And Miyazaki has been, has created some um, truly breathtaking um, cinematic um works um interestingly thinking about it i have never seen a miyazaki film in the cinema um, which is kind of surprising i guess i've seen i've only ever seen them on um tv or at like university screenings um and you know that said and i've only in the cinema i only saw um, the handmaiden and decision to leave um i think on any given day i would 
you know, be happy to sit down and watch any film by any of these guys. So what I will say is, thinking about their back catalogues, um, that there are entries in their back catalogues that I have not seen, whose am I more intrigued to go back and look at? And the answer is Miyazaki. So my pick of our of March Madness ends up being, and I wouldn't have anticipated this, Miyazaki. Okay. How about James, you, James? <laughs> you're next in the um, Thunderdome. Okay, so we've got three uh, titans in our own way here. Um, you realise this could actually still be a three-way tie. <laughs> technically, yeah. I mean, okay. <laughs> Miyazaki, I think... I'll just rule out for the moment because as I said, he's someone who's I feel I haven't delved deeply enough into his works uh, co compared to Carpenter and Park. So he'll be my third place. Um, and then it becomes. Hmm. Now, Vincent makes an interesting point um, about how Park has many interesting works that could come his way. And each one of them makes me excited. But Carpenter essentially is done making films. He'll score like a Foo Fighters movie or a Firestar remake, but he's not going to direct anything else, it seems. So then it just becomes, for me, does the back catalogue of John Carpenter, is that strong enough to withstand the potential, potential of what Park Chan-wook can bring out? And then the idea of getting more films like Old Boy, The Handmaiden, Stoker, excites me. But compared to the idea of fil films that have raving out like The Thing, Christine, In the Mouth of Madness, They Live, and Halloween, I gotta be honest, that is harder than I thought it would be. But when it comes down to it, I'm gonna go with my man, John Carpenter. Right, so it's one for Miyazaki, one for Carpenter. You get to decide if it's going to be a win or a tie. Russell? Whose idea was this? This is a hellish thing. <laughs> um, we should do it again sometime. <laughs> so I have to choose between <laughs> my favourite director, who I might not think is the best director, the director who probably influenced me most as a teenager maybe tarantino over him but he was fairly influential all the director whose works now mean a hell of a lot to me Ugh. Mm. Uh, mm, mm, mm. Oh. this is bad podcasting not talking isn't it um so <laughs> i will think out loud not i will rule out park chan work because while I think he's an exceptional Ooh. director, I do think there are films of his that don't click with me in the way that others do. So while I have all the time in the world for Old Boy and the Handmaiden, I didn't love Stoker. I don't love Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And I thought Decision to Leave was impressive, but left me a bit cold. Park Chan-wook is a director who is very capable of leaving me cold at his films. But when he works, he is one of the great directors. He is a phenomenal director. And I will go watch his film on the first day to find out if it is a film that leaves me impressed, but 
uh, a bit cold or one that I'll fall utterly in love with. So then we have two older directors who have both achieved prominence in the 70s and 80s and then continued. And in this regard, I think I'm going to pick the director who has been the most consistent in their career. Uh, I love John Carpenter. I think his works are phenomenal. The Thing is my favourite horror. Uh, I think The Fog is brilliant. I think that um, Prince of Darkness is utter bobbins and I love it. But Hayao Miyazaki <laughs> is such a consistent director and has such a uh, grasp of his themes and his tone across his films from sci-fi post-apocalyptic epics of giant bugs through to beautiful tales of uh, children and uh, forest spirits through to a tale of an anthropomorphic pig flying in post-World War One. I. I think that if... So Miyazaki has a film coming out. If it was announced uh, tomorrow that John Carpenter has a film coming out, the film I'd be more excited for is the higher Miyazaki film because he has been more consistent. And I have watched the John Carpenter films post uh, in The Mouth of Madness. I have seen the works of his that don't work the same way. Um, yeah. I'm going to go for Hayao Miyazaki and my heart is breaking because Park Chan-wook and John Carpenter are two of the very, very finest directors. But I think Hayao Miyazaki is the best director here. So, I didn't yeah, think this would happen. Hayao Miyazaki? Yeah. yeah. And oh. James, you should go off and watch some Hayao Miyazaki. Um, if you haven't seen it, Princess Mononoke is the one to watch. It is the one totally. they tried to uh, get the West in on and it didn't work. Uh, it is sprawling and epic and beautiful. Yeah, I that one I know that um, originally for the localization dub, they wanted to get Quentin Tarantino to do the screenplay for it. And I think he oh, recommended Neil, Guy, Neil, Neil Gaiman to do it, he recommended. Yeah, yeah. And that he, was um, a smart choice. Mm. He sent Harvey Weinstein a samurai sword that had uh, no cuts on it because Harvey wanted to cut uh, yeah. Prince Mononoke to ribbons. But yeah, Hayao Miyazaki wins! And he's Yay! got a film coming out at the end of the year, I believe. At some point this year, there'll be a new one coming. Basically, his son is not a good enough director, so he keeps unretiring <laughs> and making <laughs> he hates his son. It's very apparent in interviews he doesn't like his son, and his son is directing not very good films. I'll find the clips. Ooh. It's a bit like Succession. Okay. That's our March Madness. I quite enjoyed that up until the end when I had to pick <laughs> between the Friedrichs. Um, I think we all suffered there. We all um, suffered. We, this, all... this is what we do, listeners. We suffer for your enjoyment, so I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> Who are you? A great big soot gremlin? And uh, from there, a film that is following on the legacy of one of our directors, Wes Craven, is Scream 6 or Scream VI or whatever it is. Um, which is obviously the sixth installment in Scream. And James, you're going to take us through it, aren't you? I am indeed. So just a year after 2022 Scream was released, which is Scream 5, um, 
not to be confused with 1996 original. Directors Matt Bettinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillett, who are collectively known as Radio Silence, have released this latest instalment into the franchise that Wes Craven created all that time ago. And this one, interestingly, leaves Woodsboro to take the returning characters to New York City. But their hopes hopes to just leave behind their bloody past is all for naught, because who's following them? Why, it's that chapper in that white mask, it's Ghostface himself. And oh dear, he has murderous machinations in mind. But what we've got here is a film which honours the past while carving a path towards the future. And my goodness, Ghostface does quite some carving in this film. Now, it now Neve Campbell understandably didn't return to this series for um, understandable reasons that the offer she was given for returning uh, to this franchise, which she led for the first four films, um, the offer was insulting. So it was interesting that this was the first film to not contain Sidney Prescott returning. But we do have Courtney Cox returning as Gail Weathers. And and in the lead roles, we have who are affectionately known as the core four. So you've got the last film survivors, which include sisters Sam and Tara Carpenter, played by Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega. Got the lovable himbo Chad, played by um, Mason Gooding, and film buff Mindy, Mindy, film buff Mindy, played by the a wonderful, a wonderful cast member of Yellow Jackets, Jasmine Savoy Brown. And it's for me, I thought it was interesting because yes, Gail returned, but Sydney di- didn't. But I'll be honest, Gail's ret- inclusion didn't feel as vital to this film for me and i i could have been done with her being left out to focus on some of the newer inclusions who were included in this film and even though the circumstances were unfortunate regarding nev campbell's return i'm kind of glad sydney didn't return because i feel this film benefited from one less legacy character and focusing on the newbies but what but part of the fun with these films include the set pieces and i think the radio silence team has given us some really impressive ones you've got this tense bodega scene which um which got film twitter in a cry over ghostface using a shotgun you've got a ladder sequence which oh my goodness was that tense And then there's that train sequence, which the first trailer debuted, which I saw at my local cinema um, every time I visited for about two months. So that was fun. I love seeing Scream um, advertised, but that did nothing to lessen the impact of that sequence because it's all part of this more aggressive iteration of Ghostface who turns humans into meat with pretty gnarly effect. And part of the fun is what the who done it elements and the why of it all. For me, this wasn't the strongest bit of the film, and it was particularly less effective when the char- when it was resulting in monologues delivered in the third act to untangle 
what came before it. But despite that, I thought this was another killer installment in one of my favourite horror franchises to date. Um, possibly because it's more consistent than a lot of the other horror franchises that have been out. And possibly because no one goes to space for some bullshit reason. <laughs> Um, Vin- Vincent, what did you? I know you saw this as a double bill with Scream Five in the cinema. What did you think of this sixth installment? Well, firstly, I find it interesting that you talk about um, in Scream Six, Ghostface, um, you know, being particularly um, grisly and gnarly. Um, I don't think Ghostface was ever renowned for being particularly, you know, gentle or restrained. <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> um, all right, fair. Yeah, uh, but I guess it's fair to say, in some ways, there is. Um, you know, there is more to it this time around. Yeah. Um, I I really enjoyed it. I did see it as part of a double bill. When I saw Scream 5 last year, I was thoroughly unimpressed by it. And watching Scream 5 a second time, when I knew what was coming, I enjoyed it a lot more, interestingly. Um, but I think Scream 6 was a step up. I think that Scream 6 managed to be inventive. I think it was gleefully gory. Um, it did a nice job of, of um, interweaving its themes of legacy, family, and the use of expectations. Obviously, the Scream franchise has always been about, you know, has been meta-cinematic and, um, you know, the, and it's um, engaging with expectations of its audience and it uses those um, really well. I also think it was at times genuinely scary. The ladder sequence that James already mentioned was like, <laughs> like that, which I think may have been a bit like when the three of us watched Fall last year. Um, <laughs> um, and similarly, the subway sequence was again, properly tense and thinking like, okay, where's this going? Where's this going? Where's this going? Oh, this is not going to end well. Um, Perhaps in some respects, there were slight cop-outs. And I will say, in terms of the, um, as I say, the use of expectations and the subverting of expectations and the using that subversion as an actual rewarding was very, it got very weird and complicated. Um, overall, I enjoyed it. Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it made a great use of New York. Um, it was not, you know, Jason Takes Manhattan, <laughs> where there's not much to it. It's a lot. I think it made good use of that. Um, and if I could have one thing to say, and even at a point in this opening sequence when I said, oi now, when um, the film studies uh, professor got um, put down her own subject. And I'm like, you never do that. Um, not saying that she, you know, deserved what she got, but still, you know, I felt affronted at that point. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, Scream Six, you know, very enjoyable. How about you, Russell? Oh yeah, I, I had great fun with this Scream installment. As I said uh, during our March Madness, I'm not the biggest of Scream fans. I, I think the film is good, but my uh, somewhat not dislike, but hostility towards slashers comes through when I watch it. But with this one, I it was my favorite Scream until it wasn't, and I'll get into when it wasn't. But when it was, it had. Um, fabulously tense kill scenes i thought the opening was great i liked the switcheroo that happens within the first 10 minutes that kind of calls that yes this is going to be a, a sneaky tricky little bastard um mm-hmm. i thought that the ladder bit was great i thought the train bit was fantastic i, I thought every single individual she- individual sequence was great i think our core four are much better here they're given more time to kind of envelop the film and I thought the legacy aspects 
worked less for me this time because they didn't feel like they were needed. It felt like it could just be the core four and we would have had a really great film on its hand. Where I felt the film fell down for me was when we got that last, that finale and it all became a bit, wait, what? You're doing it because of this? This is why you're doing it? It felt a bit... It felt like the bit where the the fact there'd been a quick rewrite of this film because Neve Campbell wasn't doing it was most pronounced for me that it felt like they just kind of had to pull an ending together the, the way they had. But I still think this is a really, really fun uh, horror romp. I think it's a great scream installment. I am gladly going to watch the seventh one when it comes out. I assume next year, I assume they're doing one a year for a bit or at least do a trilogy of one a year. Um, and I had fun with this and I want to watch it again. I want to watch it again, knowing what I know and see if I'm still frustrated with how it ends. Um, but yeah, on a whole, I had a great time with Scream 6. I think it's a lot of fun. I've seen some people get annoyed online about it, but I'm a bit like, well, it's not Halloween kills or ends, is it? There's nothing there that's that offensive. It's just maybe, I don't know. But yeah, and I, when James says that that, that this... Uh, ghost face feels particularly violent i think it's a very stabby ghost face i think there's the way that the uh these two directors kind of show violence is in is slightly different from how wes craven showed it maybe that's our sensibilities have changed maybe it's their sensibilities as directors but yeah again i'm rambling all i can say is Mm. i enjoyed this i will gladly watch another one of these films and I'd gladly have them go to space. Why not? Sure, send the yeah. core four into space. That'd be fun. But before we do that, and before even we move on, I suggest we cast our eyes back um, in relation to some screams, and particularly some rotten tomatoes. <laughs> now, so as we haven't done this for a while, so I thought it'd be fun to bring back this little game, um, Pinched from the Sequelizers podcast. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, as you're probably aware, is a site which does a, uh, a, a an aggregate, a, co- a combination of different reviews to find out what a, the score is for a film. It's not particularly accurate. It, all a film needs is to get um, over... Um, 60% or three out of um, five in order to qualify as fresh. But it's quite fun to see what um, critics have said about it. And I thought, uh, let's have a look at the whole Scream franchise. So I've got the Rotten Tomatoes scores for all six Scream films. And we're going to go through them. And uh, James and Russell will say what they think of the scores. And we'll see what we come out with at the end. So we start, unsurprisingly, with Scream 1996. James, what do you think is the Rotten Tomatoes score for Scream? I think it was high, so I'm going to go with 92%. By the way, folks, I didn't warn these guys. I'm just springing it on them, so they're probably thinking, Damn you, Vincent! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's all the the uh, the time of hard choices today. Russell, what do you think Scream got? Um, I think I'm in a similar ballpark to James, but I'm gonna go for ninety because. Kidoki? Oh, but then am I being wrong? Yeah, I'm going for ninety, but I think I think James is right, so I'm going for ninety. Okay, all right. One year later, 1997, we get Scream Two. Russell, what do you think is its score? I mean, Scream Two is always seemed a well-liked entry i'm gonna 
say it was not as well reviewed, but it was still fairly high. I'm going to go for 86%. Very good. 86. James, how about you? I'm the same as Russell, where I think it was well reviewed, but not as highly as the original. I'm going to go for um, 80%. 80. Very good. Okay. Then we come to Scream 3 in 2000. James, you can go first now. What do you think Scream 3 has on Rotten Tomatoes? Okay, I think this is quite the step down from Scream and Scream 2, um, partic- especially in retrospect. Um, critical response, I think I'm going to take a pun to 35%. 35 wow, that's a hell of a drop. Okay. Russell, what do you think? As big a drop? I mean, it was fairly poorly reviewed, and I think Screen Free is fairly hokey. Um, James, 35, I'll do 36, because then I get everything above 36. Let's go 36. (laughs) Fair point. Okay, moving on to Screen 4, more than a decade later, 2011. Russell, what are your your thoughts on uh, the critical response to Screen 4? I remember it being better reviewed, but not. Um, I don't think it gained five star reviews. I think it was solidly reviewed. So I'm going to say 54. Okay, 54. James, how about you? I'm in the same park as Russell. I think I seem to remember there was um, a mixed reviews at the time with noting, like, oh, it's a step up from Scream Free, but. Not exactly saying it was a returned form of Scream and Scream 2. Um, I think Russell's in the right ballpark. Um, uh, 55%. 55 okay. Fair enough. It's interesting that your scores are generally pretty close together. Right, and now we're getting much more up to date. So Scream or Scream 5, 2022. James, what's your thinking? Um, I think it, yeah, it was pretty well liked, but I think it was, a lot of it was, oh, thank God they didn't fuck up what Wes did. Um, I'm going to take a guess and say 80%. James says 80. What does Russell say? I was going to go for 80 for five cream, which is how I like to call it. Uh, let's go <laughs> for 82 that's well, that seems high. Eighty-two. 82. Let's go for eighty-two. Yep. Okay, eighty-two. And right up to date now. Um, I think it feels we were talking about this only minutes ago. Uh, Scream Six from twenty twenty-three. Russell, what do you think? I think it's slightly worse reviewed, but not particularly. So I think it's still mostly positive reviews. So I'm going to go for seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. Okay, James. Um, yeah, I think it was worse reviewed than the fifth one. Um, 76%. 76. Right then. Okay, let's see. So the way we'll do this is whomever was closest on each occasion will get the, well, I guess the point as it were. All right, so going back then. So <clears throat> Scream from 1996, Russell said 90, James said 92. The actual score... Is perhaps a surprisingly low 80%. Oh, 80%. That's right. So uh, Russell was slightly closer on that one. Then we go to Scream 2, 
where uh, uh, James said 80 and Russell said 86. Interestingly, James was closer this time because the actual score is 82%, making, uh, here's, here's a spoiler for you, Scream 2 is the highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes of the franchise, which no. surprised me, I must say. Okay, Scream 3, um, surprise, surprise, the lowest rated. Um, <laughs> you both went really low, 36 and 35. It's not quite as low as that. Uh, Russell was closer on 36 because the actual score is 41%. Yeah, so um, Scream 3 is the only one officially voted rotten. The other, uh, the rest all managed to be fresh. But let's see how fresh. Mm. Scream 4, Russell said 54, James said 55. And this time, James was closer because the score is 60%. You know, so you've, been, you've both been pretty close all the way through. I see the pattern going on here. <laughs> yes, me too. Yeah. Russell, James, Russell, James. Um, I should have picked a seventh film so it would even out. Never mind. Um, so Scream, Five Scream, Five Cream. Um, Russell said 82. James said 80. The actual score is 76%. So James closer on that one. And then Scream 6. Interestingly, um, I think you both said that it was uh, reviewed slightly lower than Scream 5. It turns out it's slightly higher. And the score, Russell said 77, James said 76. Oops. Sorry, I just uh, did the wrong thing. I must undo my typing. There we go. Um, and the actual score is, and actually, even though it's sort of even, this does give us an overall winner. The score is... 77 percent so although it's sort of even all the way through you know so russell got three and james got three i think because russell is spot on for scream six i think russell wins that one <laughs> thank you uh, i'll take my cash prize now oh yes it's um it, it's in the post but um i can't promise it's not a dismembered body part <laughs> ah yeah. good i won Excellent. Yay! Yeah, yeah. So you're doing really Ooh. well, Russell, because you won the Rotten Tomatoes round, and one of your picks won March Madness. Well, when you pick the players that you pick, they just do all the work mm. for you. I suppose <laughs> so. Yes. Um, I guess I won our Oscar pool, as it were. You got a problem here, guy? So that's yeah. our thoughts on Scream 6. I'm sure we'll talk about Scream 7 when it comes, I'm assuming, next year. Maybe they'll do a Christmas one. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? A snowy Scream mm, film. Yeah. I'd enjoy that. And all it leaves us to do is to Scream recommend Scream meets some... Black Christmas. Scream meets Black... Oh, my God. I... We should pitch that hard. And all that leaves us to do <laughs> is... Yeah. Our something. So we've got something old, something new, and our snaps. Something, not a film. So, first up, James, you're doing our something old, aren't you? No, I'm doing something not a film. Oh, then Vincent, you're doing our something old. Yes, Look he is. Skillful Indeed, yes. Yeah. Well done, well done. Yes, the old man is doing something old. Um, 
then yeah and it, actually you know i'm feeling my age because it's my birthday next week <laughs> where i reached the grand old age of 44 um and speaking of things that have um reached particular ages um i'm my something old is a film that celebrated its 30th anniversary um two years ago um we've we've, we've had quite um um a horror theme um you know talking uh scream and the works of wes craven and um john carpenter and the my something old is is arguably the only horror film to ever win the academy award it is silence of the lambs from 1991 favorite film of all time um it is a film i can watch again and again and i keep finding new things um it never fails to um uh, to envelop me and uh, chill me to the core, which is why I do consider it a horror film, even though there's debate over whether it's a horror or a thriller. Um, I won't say a great deal about it here, but if you want to hear me talking at length about it, then check out uh, the latest episode of Drunken Horror Podcast, where uh, myself and the hosts of that podcast talk at length about The Silence of the Lambs. It's a classic. It's only It's one of only three films to win the Big Five Academy Awards, picture directing, lead actor, lead actress, and screenplay, adapted screenplay in this case. Um, and yeah, it's a film that um, in, uh, ab absolutely um, thrilled me when I saw it for the first time in 1999. I've seen it more times than I can remember, and it always provides me with a brilliant couple of hours entertainment. Um, I imagine you are both fans. I mean, it sounds the lambs. It's a masterpiece. Absolutely. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. And I remember the first time I saw it, just that whole night vision sequence, just being just shivering because it was so <laughs> tense. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, that's my something old. If you've never seen The Silence of the Lambs, well, sort that out. Um, I don't think it's available on streaming at the moment, but it'll probably come back at some point or, you know, get some get buy it on DVD or Blu-ray because um, it's it's this kind of film it's a film that i think is worth owning yeah um now from the uh old and um delicious when served with a nice chianti russell tell us something new so my something new is a film that's just popped up on now it was in cinemas last year it almost made my top 10 films of last year it is the wonderfully endearing brian and charles which <laughs> If you've not seen, you need to see this film. It is a joyful comedy about a lonely uh, man, I believe it's in Yorkshire, who builds his a robot out of bits from his house. The body is a tumble dryer. The head is a mannequin's head. And this is Char Charles Perdue, I think is the name of the robot. And it has a robotic, posh British voice. And this is one of the most endearingly wholesome, lovely films I've seen in a while. And I'm definitely going to watch it again. It, it is beautiful and lovely and rather silly and has this wonderful strand of British humour running through it, like a like a, a text for a core of uh, Brighton Rock. It's there. I adored Brian and Charles and I can't wait to watch it again. It it brings me so much warmth and joy. It's in the mould of like what we do in the shadows. So it's a mockumentary, it's a camera crew fo following this guy as he creates this robot. There's very low stakes. There's a local hoodlum who wants to get his hands on the robot, and that's it. 
and it's it's utterly charming and lovely. And if you've not seen it, it's 90 minutes long and your life will be warmed a little bit more by 90 minutes in the company of this film. Have either of you seen this charming joy? No, it's uh, one that, one of those many films are like, oh yeah, I should see that, but I haven't yet. But thank you for the reminder that it is on now, um, which I was, after the Oscars, I was actually going to cancel my now um, cinema subscription. Um, but then they do that thing where you go through certain many steps, and then it says, if you stay, you can have it for half price. And I'm like, oh, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yes, I will um, check that out uh, in the near future. Mm. I have not seen Brian and Charles either. It's been thoroughly recommended by many people to me whose opinions I trust. So I will get round to it. But like a lot of things, it's on my watch list and I don't know when I'll get to it. <laughs> Goddamn watch lists. They're always getting longer, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And that leaves James. What is our snap of the month? Well, my something not a film... I've gone for a TV show that's returning later this month for its fourth and final season, and that is Barry. Now, this stars Bill Hader as the titular Barry, who begin who's a hitman who begins the show traveling to Los Angeles for a job. But while he's there, he finds himself inspired to join an acting class, and through that, he questions the direction of his life. And what you've got is an often hilarious TV show, but it's also a pitch black look at this hitman who is constantly trying to make better life choices. But it's a struggle for him to escape that inner darkness. And he, through choices made, he even takes some steps further into the darkness. And it's a humorous and compelling and shocking TV series that just compels a lot, compels you, and it's one of the best half-hour co- comedies, black comedy, but yeah, comedies that I've seen in quite some time. And a lot of that's down to Bill Hader, who's exceptional as he stars in the lead role, but he's also co-creator, writer, and he's directed so many of the episodes, including a second season episode which has an utterly astounding fight that has been delivered on television and a third season episode well he did most of the if not all of the season three episodes directing them but he especially excelled with this free chase on the freeway which it's just a one of those shows which constantly draws you in and then leaves you uh, aghast as to what it does and eager to where it goes next and Oh, the fourth season. Oh, I really cannot wait for it. So that's available on the TV section of now because, yeah, to make more money, they split the TV and the cinema stuff. But but you know what? It's worth taking out a subscription at the TV stuff just to watch this. So, yeah, um, my recommendation is Barry. And Succession. Succession is coming back so you can watch both Barry and Succession. Oh, yes. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And there we have it for another month. We have 
whittled down far too many directors into one glorious winner for this month. We have talked about the Oscars and our general happiness with it. We have talked about Scream and our general happiness with it. And we have given some charming films and TV shows for you to go off and watch. And all there's left to say is I've been Russell and you can find me in both dark alleyways arguing about, I don't know, Batman or online at Russ Loves Movies on Twitter or Not Just For Kids as my podcast. We have got coming up episodes covering Ratatouille and we've had episodes on Your Name and uh, Wreck-It Ralph. That's the one we've had recently. Yeah. Uh, James, if I am being chased by a knife-wielding man in a uh, ghostly mask, where would I come to come hide with you? Well, you can find your own place because I don't want Ghostface to come after me. Um, But... If you really need to find me, then I'm on Twitter, Letterboxd, that RoddersJ04, that's spelled with two Ds, and my I can be found on the reviewingrodders.co.uk, where I collate um, reviews I've written for whatever site and uh, whatever sites I contribute to, and along with articles and podcast appearances I do. So, yeah, come check it out. Now, Vincent, if somebody wanted to track a serial killer maybe they need some night vision goggles or maybe they just need to be locked up before even leaving their cell where could they find you amongst this bullshit analogy i've created (laughs) well you can find out about my favorite scary movies and indeed other things on twitter Instagram and Letterboxd, on all of which I am uh, Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. Um, you can also check out my blog, Vincent's Views, uh, where I post uh, my reviews, my commentary on such things as the Oscars, and um, links to all of my various podcast appearances, such as the upcoming one on Drunken Horror Podcast, where I talk The Silence of the Lambs. Um Yeah, that's where you can find all of us across um, the strange, mysterious, dark alleyway that is the internet. And we'll be back next month with even more fabulous genre chat. But until then, stay safe, stay groovy, watch a lot of horrors, get excited because there's a new Evil Dead coming in and apparently it's good. Yeah, watch. There's a lot of good sequels coming out, guys. We should get excited for all of them. I'm obviously John Wick this weekend. Yeah. It's a good time for cinema, so have a great time, listeners, and we'll see you next month. Bye-bye. So long.